2: If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com
1: slash host.
3: And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you?
2: Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Yes, 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 yes. It's the annual Irish Times Second <laughs> Captain Sportsbook Christmas special with additional Andy Lee interview. This is my kind of show, folks. I'm on. Murphy's here somewhere behind this mountain of books. Just let me. I'm just going to. Uh, hello, look Hello. hello. Kieran, there you are.
0: Hey, Owen. How you doing? How are you? I'm good, Owen, I'm good. I thought I'd
2: made myself clear at our planning meeting. We're, we're just going to pick our five favourites. Why the hell have you brought in every single sports book published in the world this year? It's ridiculous.
0: <sighs> I'm sorry, Owen, if I, you know, if I, if, I, if I hear what you say at the planning meetings and then I show some initiative. Okay, that's the sort of employee I am, <laughs> you know?
2: Some of these books are out of print as far as I was concerned, but you've, you've well, done
0: I've, got, I've me, yeah. gone the extra mile for you, Owen, mm. so that if a book should come up, that you're not immediately familiar with, that you've read, but you just you're not entirely sure. You need something, some trigger. Mm. You know, I will be able to within seconds <laughs> produce it, hold it in front of your face, and then you'll have something awesome. to Would say you about be able it. to open that at the relevant passage as well? Yes, <laughs> yes, that that should be possible.
2: I think one of the reasons I enjoy doing the show is, I'm, I read a lot of sports books, I should say, I spend a large chunk of my life reading sports books, mm. but I don't get through as many as I really should, given the time I devote to it, because I'm a painfully slow reader. Mm. I'm not sure when this affliction first started affecting my life, but I've only really noticed it in the last, what is it doing this job, the last number of years. Yeah. When,
0: well, see, you, you always get set a deadline. So we're talking to that person yeah. on Thursday. Mm. So if you're handed a book on a Monday, then I would automatically say, well, that's fine. He's got three days. <laughs> you would say that I need to somehow transport myself in time back to last Wednesday to give me the time I need to read this book. Yeah. I mean it's now it see your problem on as well, if I if I can speak fine, mm-hmm. is that you you're an assiduous note taker while reading, you see.
2: Yeah, that is that is one of the issues. But again, I wouldn't now I wouldn't be reading a novel and there taking notes. You and know? you're I, still slow at that. Yeah, but no, but you are right. There definitely is that issue that that. I, but that helps. See the notes help. at this time of year, when I go back, skim mm. through them. I, I, are I'm, you writing on the margins now? By the way, you're not actually writing on the margins on of the, the book. book? Are you? No, I okay, used well, to do that. Good. I used to highlight and circle, and then I realize you're desecrating these. What yeah. kind of defeats the purpose of having a nice book if you're just destroying it with pen, scribbling all? But I used to, yeah, it. no, I used to do that quite a lot, all right. Yeah. So, so, so your tips for faster reading: number one, stop taking notes.
0: Stop taking notes. Stop being such a good journalist. That's number one. <laughs> just can't stop. <laughs> if you could just <laughs> take that out stop. of your being yeah, diligent journalizing. Uh, Yeah, so less diligence um, Less trying to understand Every facet of the book mm. You know Like just just, just get through it No, the just, issue
2: there is You don't know which you're, in the, you're particularly in the early stages You're taking a lot of stuff down Because you don't know Whether that's going to become a theme That you come back to Or something that could Spark something else off in your mind So that's why I do Fall down That I'm trying to Your brain to, is yeah. the beach and the book
0: is the broad Atlantic Ocean, mm. and the Atlantic Ocean will sweep onto your your beach brain. Oh God! It Will sweep onto the onto the beach. It will take some things, and what it remains will be the beautiful beach. So your brain is the beach, but the book is also the beach. I know what's <laughs>
2: happened here. You've spent the last what was the last, You've spent the last couple of days. Yes. Reading every article on the website of Patty Wood. I have. I have. Because not only is Patty language. a body language yep. expert, she's just an expert in life. That would be her kind of analogy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Paddy Wood There's something to do With a beach <laughs> yeah. Everything is a beach uh, Life I suppose Is a beach
2: <laughs> We are going to get Maliki Turkin in To offer some guidance On what he's read this year Maliki uh, I would imagine A quicker reader than I And uh, has Let us all hope Yeah <laughs> uh, has, has read a lot, a lot of the Best offerings this year So we'll pick five And then Ultimately Put down to one we, will, yeah. we, won't, we won't pulp the rest of them we'll just put them down to one for the purposes of giving you the best sports book of the year we will year. burn
0: them though we'll, we'll burn all of the other books big
2: big night in the boxing world on Saturday Andy Lee defends his WBO World Midway Championship against the unbeaten Billy Joe Saunders I watched some footage of Andy working out quite hypnotic sometimes when you watch these uh, this footage that they send out from boxing gyms he's just hitting the heavy bag for about three minutes it's nothing it's not going to scare the life out of Billy Joe Saunders Billy Joe Saunders won't see this and go holy shit Andy Lee's going to kill me. Mm. There's, it's not designed to do that. But what I did take from it, I, I do get slightly hypnotized by it. It's just this relentless sort of power. But his uh, um, heavy bag work, he did look pretty intense. Mm. Andy is getting into intense fight week mode, which is where he needs to be. But this has been going on for so long. He looks like he's sick of talking about it. It has been, this is the third iteration of this fight it's supposed to be in Tolman Park that was cancelled supposed to be on again a while after that in October wasn't it that was cancelled so it was September then October it's now December we're nearly at Christmas uh, I think he wants to just defend this world title successfully and enjoy his Christmas so mm-hmm. he really does look like he's got that edge which is always great to see um, which he's had for quite a long time now uh, there's a bit of the McGregor although about this if, in the sense that this is something that has was supposed to happen for a long time and the build-up has just gone on too long and it needs to happen now and it turned out to be pretty explosive and that did happen and it could well be explosive again in Manchester on Saturday so let's talk to the man himself
1: 1, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 unanswered punches 15 of them really hurt on the Irish Everyone in the house are hurting. I heard all your cheers. And he got me through that fight. Matt car was giving me a nightmare. And I found it really hard in there. But anyway, listen, I'm a midway fighter, I'm a champion now. I want to defend my belt in Ireland and I'll
3: fight the best in the world. Congratulations, Andy. What the Irish! Give it oh. Right left hand! Oh. The winner by TKO victory, and now, the WBO middleweight champion of the world, Irish, Andy
1: Lee!
2: Well, Andy, we're just trying to get the blood pumping ahead of the fight. Did it work?
3: Yeah, play it again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, really. when you played that a few weeks ago... Uh when he was speaking about Tyson Fury with Don McRae, and yeah. you played that out there, I was listening. To the hall like, oh, I gotta get that." You know. Unfortunately, uh, Mike sent me through the fire. It's brilliant. He,
2: uh, obviously, emotionally at the moment, I don't know what 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 pitch you want to be at right now. Given that we're just a few days out from the fight,
3: um, it, it's pretty hard to be absolutely buzzing because you're making weight, so your your energy's a little bit low, and I have a few pounds to lose away in Friday, um, but. Uh, Underneath it all, there is an excitement because the fight's near after a long build-up, um, longer than usual over the two postponements. The fight's finally here, and finally get to do what I love. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited and I'm looking forward to getting in the ring.
2: Yeah, those uh, postponements obviously were a dent at the time. Uh, at one stage, it was going to be in Tolmond. It was going to be that sort of homecoming fight, and it was going to happen again. It finally is happening now. Uh, it, it's changed a little bit as well. It was it was great that you got you and Adam Booth. Originally managed to get the fight over to Ireland. Now it's this Frank Warren promotion in Manchester. Am I wrong in thinking that this feels maybe like a part of your career and fight that you just need to get over? Now you you just want to get it get it behind you and take control again.
3: Yeah, for, like for a number of reasons. Obviously, it's it's dragged out, and um, it, you know, if if I'm being totally honest, not a fight I probably would have had anyway because um, obviously I want to fight the big big fights in America. And I would have fight one of the champions, and the Billiard Center was a monetary challenger. We signed the contract, and then we had the two uh, postponements. So it's it has dragged out, but it's a serious challenge I'm facing on Saturday. You know, it's it's not someone I can afford to look past, or you know, I can't allow the postponements to, or the you know the the the, the long slog of training and all that to to wear me down. I have to stay positive, stay focused, and then. Like, there is a law of the winner, despite having a big fight with maybe Golovkin or Saul Alvarez or Danny Jacobs. Um, But if I don't win on Saturday night, it it won't all those things disappear. So I have to be very focused on the fight.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure because the build-up has been going on so long. I mean, we're doing an interview with you at the moment, so I probably shouldn't even say it. But I'm sure you're fed, fed up talking at this stage.
3: Yeah, uh, I guess we've talked out. We've, we've had now, to count eight press conferences for this fight. <laughs> and, uh,
2: Which was your favorite one, Andy? <laughs> <laughs> the
3: first one. I think have they've gone downhill since. But uh, you know, there's no animosity between myself and Billy Joe Saunders. And we're very respectful of each other, and um, I think it's the like, these press conferences are just getting duller and duller because we've said anything that we've said. We're just repeating ourselves now and.
2: He and I, I can can sense it in him too. He's eager to get in the ring. I did see, uh, there are uh, uh, sort of two of you talking on Steve Bunce's show, and there were some interesting exchanges. Uh, It's easier maybe to say something interesting in that environment than in the press conference environment. But there seemed to be a sense there that Saunders, Saunders said he'd be happy enough if he can stay in the fight for the first six rounds. He'd be doing well then, and then it's about about pressing home his advantage at that stage. Do you sense a little bit of uh, weakness there based on what he was talking about?
3: You know that was shot a long time ago. Yes, yeah. so, like things that we've said have been moved on. So sure, far. Yeah, and, yeah. And 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 we're in like we're in fight mode now. And well, everyone's saying different things. You know, so um, <laughs> it's. Uh, I, I don't. I, I think he's very eager. I know him. I know him. Like I know his mindset. Uh, he's he's very hungry. Um, and he's he's not. He'll come. He's gonna come hard. He's not gonna. He's not gonna wilt away from the challenge. Oh, he's gonna come, and I think he's gonna give it everything he has. Um, but I just know the type of personality he is. He's not the type of fellow to shy away from from anything. You know. So I'm expecting a hard fight. You know. I'm gonna to have to be at my best to beat him. But uh, at the end of the day, I just think I have. Every, I can do everything he does, but only better to a better level. I'm technically better. Have a bigger reach, more height, more power, and. Um, I think that's just, the end, at the end of the day, it's just, that's just it, what it boils down to.
2: Chris Eubank Jr., I understand, has been in your camp, or is in your camp. He obviously fought Saunders. Has he been helpful on specifics?
3: No, we we, um, we, we don't really say much to each other. I don't know. Uh, I think he has an eye on me. He might want to fight me soon, <laughs> but uh, well, I don't ever see it happen. We we have the same trainer and that, but <clears throat> we train together, but we have different training times. So when I'm leaving, he's coming into the gym. Okay, and then we say hello how are you getting on and blah blah but not, nothing, nothing too detailed
2: like that One of the angles that has been most discussed at this stage obviously is the fact that you, we're talking about two fighters here yourself and Saunders from a uh, traveller background I'm wondering it has been a big part of the build up certainly in the UK um, and the two of you have talked quite a lot about it is that a big part of it for you in terms of this fight Do you, does it matter that you're fighting uh, a traveller or is it something you just kind of need to go along with for the promotional purposes?
3: Yeah, it's not. It's not something that I, I'm even. You can't. I don't like. I don't really put much weight behind it. You know, uh, in terms of, i uh, like it's an extra I, I, a layer to the fight. You know, you have two guys fighting for the world title from a traveling background. It is. It is an, not a historic thing, but it is another subplot to the fight. Um, but for me, I just gotta think like he's just another guy. You know, the fact that I know his mindset, I know where he comes from. I can't allow that to play on my mind. It, to me, I just have to take him like he's another guy, and, and for me personally, it doesn't really mean much to me. You know,
2: is that what you mean when you uh, when you say that you know where he's coming from? You know the sort of attitude yeah. he's going to bring. I know,
3: I know what he's. I, I know a million guys like him, and I know I know how it is, and I know what it's like when you grow up in that community. What how competitive it is, and how it, it's male. It's a male-dominated uh, society, and. You can't show any weakness. And, you know, you grow up, um, traveling boys, gypsy boys, they grow up a lot faster than than the normal people because they have to stand for themselves in this environment. You know, it's, 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 it's kill or be killed, really. And you can't, like I said, you can't show any weakness. You can't let anyone get over on you in any way. And that breeds a certain mindset. And that, You'll see, it, but like, if you go to national championships in the national stadium, you'll see the half of the fights are traveling boys in the finals, you know, because... Boxing is something that they get into, something that they pride themselves on, and they all have that competitive nature.
2: It's interesting because he's only 26 years of age, a young man by a lot of standards. But the way you talk about it, there, that's that's not really young. He, he's got a lot. He's probably lived a lot, and he's got a. He's he's going to have a certain mindset um, that that might be more mature in boxing terms than a, an, another 26 year old might. Yeah,
3: you do. Like from like. Travelling boys, a lot of them, at the age of 15, they're, they're out of school and they're working jobs. And, but at 17, 18, they drive hard, you know, so mm-hmm. it is a cultural thing. Um, but he's a young, in terms of boxing and experience, he is young. And um, I have to make that count, you know. I have to make it... I have to have to, have to to let him deal with things that he's not dealt with before in term, internally, in his mind, constantly. He's never been in a really hard fight where it's looked like he's going to lose before. And he's, you know, in this... He's dealing with it the first fight where he's probably a slight underdog probably feels he's a slight underdog and already that's creating a doubt in his mind and as the fight goes on I have to hit him with hard punches create more doubt and then you know and let him feel like he's losing rounds, he's losing rounds. And that, that, that's sort that, of what I have to do. I really have to make him accept defeat first in his mind yeah. before it happens in the ring.
2: I know you're probably, as you were saying, you've talked so much, you probably aren't even aware that you're still saying interesting stuff, Andy. But I saw you say yeah. that I've, I have to be detached from the gypsy battle from Team Billy Joe, his friends, his cousins, from Team Andy Lee even. I found that interesting. Could you expand on that? What
3: did I have to detach
2: from it all? Yeah, how do how do you how do you go about being detached from e- e- even from Team Andy Lee? You said.
3: Well, I'm talking about yeah, like friends and brothers and people who are involved in the back and forth between both sides, and that there is like, if you like, uh, I'm not here to represent anybody. I never have. I've never been a you know spokesperson for 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 traveller and gypsy rights or anybody. I've just represented myself. I represent my family. I represent my country. That's 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 about it. And you know, you, I think you've just put pressure on yourself if if you go out there, you know, trying to prove something for anybody like other than yourself. I've, like I never wanted to become world champion for anybody other than myself and my family. You know, and I'm I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. So in that sense, you just kind of like you know let them be with all that. If they want to go back and forth and and have bragging rights and have you know. I uh, will just leave it to them. It's not. It's nothing got to do with me.
2: It sounds like um, we've been speaking to you for so many years now. It sounds like your motivations are still pretty much the same, which is great. I, it can. It can sometimes change. I'm sure you didn't know yourself what was going to happen when you became world champion, but you sound as as motivated and motivated by the same sort of by the same sort of elements as you were before you became world champion.
3: Yeah, look, I want to be a great champion. I don't, like, after, as soon as I won the belt, I didn't want to just be a guy who's, that's it, he's won the title, he's champion, like a flash in the pan. I want to be a great champion, and um it's a fight, you know, I've, I think becoming a champion has elevated me. I train a lot, I think I train better, uh, I lead by example in terms of being in the gym, and I carry myself, I carry myself with a confidence of being a champion, so I think it's elevated me, and uh, this is a fight, you know. I don't. Think, I just. I just know. Like I'd be, if it was a game. Of, it was a game of chess. If it was a game of PlayStation. I'd want to win. So something that I pride myself on, like boxing, I'm very competitive and I want
2: to win. The advantage, I guess, of the postponements is that you've had a lot of training under your belt now, more training with Adam Booth. You're only with him a couple of years and you guys have been unbelievable for each other. Have you? Are we going to see anything different? I don't know how, how, many, how specific you want to get, but in, in terms of the training that you've done for this fight, tactically, will we see a different Andy Lee?
3: Um, I I think you, uh, for for someone with a, with an educated now an educated eye will see improvements. Um I believe I'm boxing better even now I'm I'm still improving. Um what I've been working on, Billy Joe's a very active fighter and he's he's uncomfortable with not being active and not you know, there's two fighters standing in front of each other posing or fainting. He gets very he's kind of gets agitated, gets uncomfortable and he has to let his hands go. He's kind of an anxious fighter. And I'm planning on making that work against him. Uh countering him, matching him with punches. Meeting him with punches when he comes in. Meeting with punches, uh, and just just letting let his activity and his punch for punch output work against him.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting point. At the even power wise, we, you, I think there was a lot of respect between yourself and Quid and as as regards the power that he had is a little bit different with uh, with with this guy Saunders. The way you've talked about him before, it seems like you respect his attitude. You respect a lot about him, but I, I get the sense that you don't feel. Um, you don't feel maybe as as afraid of his power as you would have been with somebody like Quillen.
3: Yeah, I think if you look at la- the last three or four guys I thought they're all bigger punchers than Billy Joe. Um, but in saying that, he, he's a middleweight; he'll have ten ounce gloves on, and no one wants to get hit with those shots. So I'm sure he can sting me. Um, but in terms of power, I don't. You know, like compared to Quillen, it's it's night and day. And to compare them as comparing them as fighters, it, it couldn't be more different. So. He brings his own challenge, he has speed, he's active, like I said, and um he has good footwork and good head movement and he knows how to win he's undefeated. He knows how to win fights and um I would have to you know, have to take all those things away from him eventually and as the fight we're on take away his his strengths, his fast hands, his jabs, make him have doubts and eventually
2: beat him. Some of these pre-chats, uh, pre-fight chats that we have, I think, I find we're almost imploring you not to get involved in too many exchanges. We know how you, the, the power you have and that you, you know you've proven that you have knockout power. In this case, could it actually be something that's quite beneficial if you do get involved in exchanges with this guy?
3: Yeah, I have to um, entice him to exchange. You know, if he feels like I'm strong or if he feels the power of my punches, he might start to move, box and move. And tried to, you know, steal a point's win where he's jabbing and moving, trying to catch me and move. So I might have to entice him to exchange. But I'm also looking forward to showing that I can box, you know, because of the way my last fights have gone, being behind, coming back, getting these knockouts. Um, people are, in a way, they just think they think I'm a big puncher and and not really much of a blocker You know, I, I'm actually looking forward to showing how they can box. And if I win, a, if I have to go twelve rounds and win a points decision, I'll be quite satisfied with that because it will show another another side to my game.
2: It's been a friendly, respectful build-up. I think on both sides. At at what point do you become the animal that we see in the ring? Is that just the 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 day of the fight, the morning of the fight, the night before?
3: Not not uh, the ten minutes before. Really? Very, very, yeah. In the dressing room will be the most like one of the most relaxed jovial you guys you'll meet, and uh, I'll have the music on, I'll just be relaxed and chat with people, warming up and going for the routine. And then when that knock comes on the door, that's time to go. That that's when it happens, you know, that the walk from the dressing room to the to the ring, and you kind of go for that transition, and um, it's just you just get your game face on. You you have to take time, soak it all in, taking the environment, you know, taking have a look around, look people in the eye in the crowd, and. Be in the moment, really, and not let it pass you by. And um, then it's just time to do the business. And, and like, you know, it's what I, what I love doing is boxing. And I love to fight. And, and I get a chance to do it in front of, you know, thousands of people. And I'm very lucky, you know. So that that's, that's the attitude I take that I actually look forward to being in there and not, you know, not treading the encounter.
2: Yeah, well, we're looking forward to watching you in there, Andy. We won't take up t- any more of your time at this stage, but I'm sure uh, I'm sure when you get the job done, Mark will put together another uh, <laughs> another few clips for you and send them on to you. Thanks very much. Yeah,
3: please do. Thanks, Alan. Thanks very much for having me on.
2: So he's almost like having a second captain isn't he? <sighs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you lads? Richie, how are you lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck (laughs) happened? (laughs) No, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone
3: in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death
0: and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that.
2: That's why sport's important. All right, brilliant stuff. From Andy there, I did um, I did get the, the sense that he was, he had a, his intensity levels at probably the right pitch, and uh, certainly judging by the conversation we had there, he seems, yeah, he seems in the right frame. I'm interested that, well, a couple of things there. First of all, I think he's handling that, the, the, the build-up of this traveller versus traveller angle, which has been huge in the British media in particular, I think he spoke very well about it there and probably said spoke a lot more eloquently than I could in trying to reflect mm. what he said. But even the idea now that he's like, okay, whatever about all of that, Families can talk about that, whether it's travel or whether it's family versus family, whatever, uh, whatever way people want to view these things. It's nothing to do. I'm I'm steering clear of mm. everything like that now. I'm just I've got I've got my game face on, or uh, he will get his game face on. Pretty much the moment he leaves the dressing room, he says he stays calm. Even in the dressing room, he's pretty chilled out about it. Mm. Um, we did have a few people onto us, uh, certainly onto me, anyway, saying that I read a bit too much into Jose Aldo's uh, body language. Before the, the McGregor fight, that maybe he that he, particularly the looking down the floor thing, mm. he does quite a lot. Um, but in this case, yeah, it's, it's it's funny. Certainly, Andy Lee is not a Jose Aldo in his uh, in his pre match routine, but it sounds like he stays nice and calm. Yeah,
0: and I I, I, I can kind of see uh, why you wouldn't want to be. You got to get to a certain pitch to want to punch someone in the mm. in the head for twelve rounds. Uh, I think that that's probably a part of your brain that you don't want to inhabit for any a, more than you. Yeah, any, any it's absolutely <laughs> yeah. necessary. That's true. Yeah, uh, and I think Andy's uh, got that one pretty much right. That
2: fight is on Box Nation. They do now have a, an app, Box Nation. You can watch it in different ways on Sky, for example, um, via as in on the Sky platform. You watch it on the Box Nation channel. They do now have an app, which you you can download the app for free. I think download the app for you free and then pay buy, for the, yeah. yeah. Then you buy within the app. So that's another way of. Of watching, but it's all on Box Nation anyway. All right, Murph here has completed every last bit of his Christmas shopping by December the 10th. But for the rest of you, normal people, <laughs> you may well want to know what sports books you should be looking for in the next few days. So let's do this. Maliki Clerken is here. Maliki, how are you? Hey, on. We do appreciate you coming in to help us wade through this um, table full of books that we've Indeed, got Indeed, yeah we won't... Uh, a lot of rugby books. Not a lot of rugby books here in front of us won't to be specific, yeah. but uh, you did mention this in your piece you'd, you'd, for the Irish Times. You'd mm. nearly think
1: there was a big rugby event <laughs> on this year. A lot of people hoping Ireland were going to... That was going to yeah. get uh, the whole nation interested in this odd little game <laughs> Yeah, uh, and go at Christmas. Oh my God, what will, what will we buy at Christmas? It's, yeah. it's
0: huge, isn't it? This rugby thing is huge and then... You know, I
1: think it's going to catch on. Yeah, fast forward two <laughs> months
0: after... But it's
2: funny though, with rugby... I I mean, there are a lot. There's a lot of autobiographies. Yeah. In fact, they're largely autobiographies. We'll talk about the Tom English book, which which isn't, and maybe that's why it breaks away mm-hmm. uh, from the, the the rest. It's not your basic formula. Am I right in thinking there really haven't been that many classic
1: rugby books? It's for, it's for, weird for, for a sport that um, there's so much around, like and has so many stories to tell. I don't know that there's that that many that really jump out at me off the top of my head.
0: Yeah, and there's that. Uh, Say, the reason why people always say, well, boxing, you know, there's always going to be good movies sure, and yeah. good books written about boxing just because of that mm. elemental combat yeah, yeah. Uh, side to the sport. And rugby has that. Uh, and it has, uh, say, in the last 20 or 30 years, huge changes, huge yeah. differences between how it used to be played to how it is played. And in fairness, to Tom English's book that we will get onto also, yeah. that does kind of capture the whole different... But, I mean, there's something about... it; It kind of feels like... The whole amateur ethos thing is something that we've gotten tired of before we even had a chance to write there's a book a about it. <laughs> there is know, a, yeah, like, there is a bit of that. But god, like a- I hear the amateur ethos, and like I'm kind of shaking my head. Right, <laughs> or no, god, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But like no one's actually written a brilliant <laughs> book about it before we can can it to the history books. But there is know?
1: also the the fact, and it, and uh, it is actually there is a wee bit of it in in No Borders. Um, the the professional era is and we know this from being around it and covering it, is a bit sort of sanitized and is a bit uh, corporate almost. And uh, everyone's message is so sort of fine-tuned that, you know, kind of getting in behind them, like Peter Stringer, I think he was maybe the ninth of that monster team to have an autobiography out this year. Yeah, what more can you say? And now, in fairness, he does he does have bits and pieces in it. He does, there are, you know, there. I do find some of the stuff about him, like being a young guy and his sort of parents sort of talking to him about, t- you know, taking human growth hormone to make him, a, to make him bigger and him sort of, even as a kid, sort of going, no, I'm not, I won't do any of that. Like I find some of that interesting, but God, I don't know how much more I can read about beating Beeritz and beating, Neil Back. and all that sort of stuff. It is know? actually
2: funny with those books and it's the same when you're interviewing these guys. It's, sometimes we'll do an interview with a sports person and you will barely mention their biggest moment because yeah. there's not much, you just, maybe you're wrong, maybe you do have to talk about that and, and it's partly the job, I guess, of the ghostwriter to try to find something new but that's not easy either when seven ghostwriters have already had a go at totally. the, the
1: same. And, and, <laughs> and in Jerry Thorne's case, he might have done two or three of the <laughs> <Yeah>. others. <anyway. laughs> yeah. and like,
0: but what it is as well is that not alone is it something that's been told before. It's the most asked question in their own lives as well. Of course, yeah. You know, so they have a rehearsed answer in their head. N- and it gets to the situation, like, the human mind is a strange thing when it comes to memory, you know? Yeah. The more you tell of it, the... Le- it, you know, the, you, you tell... It's, it's Chinese whispers in your own head. <laughs> so yeah. you, uh, what yeah. actually yeah. happened and yeah. what you remember from watching the DVD a thousand times, yeah. it that blurs into one and all of a sudden... Mm. You know, you, you, you're you left with nothing really, mm. you know, and I think that that's, that that's a weird thing as well that ghostwriters have to handle.
2: Just having a look at the William Hill Sports Book of the Year mm. Awards historical winners, so this started in 1989 yeah. in the UK. Two rugby books, actually. One of them was relatively recent Brian Moore's autobiography. I don't know if you read that. I read I didn't that. Time. Read that no. Yeah, it's good. It, well, he talks a lot about um, mental health, yeah. depression. So it, it had that.
1: I do like I, reading angle, them.
2: angle sounds a bit cynical but you, you no, know I it had the, yeah. it was one of those styles of war bravery yeah. laying himself bare quite a bit and it was actually very good and there's one from the early 90s I will find it here 93 Stephen Jones Endless Winter the inside yeah, story now
1: I did read that and I actually have it in my attic away at home and which is which I realized at some point earlier this year is a good thing because it is long out of print and is considered quite a sort of collector's item. I didn't know this. I bought it in like mm-hmm. 97 when I started college or something like that. And I do remember reading that and it it was around the time I was sort of trying, trying to get into rugby because uh, I didn't really grow up with it at all. Um, and I do remember that. that was yeah that was a very good one yeah that's Stephen Jones that is Stephen Jones thinking of. Yes. not exactly <laughs> yeah. a friend yeah, yeah, of Irish lo- rugby yeah. I love that you had to clarify that <laughs> yeah. just,
2: you're sure it's the, the end well guy. no fairness the, the one thing about Stephen Jones I don't know here listening but yeah. I was going to make the point he's not a bad writer at all it's just he seems to tend to take against Ar- Ireland a lot of the time well put it
1: this way this was in 1993 when yeah. he didn't really you know Ireland wasn't even a blip on his radar so there's really no anti-Irish stuff in yeah, it. yeah we,
2: we've been talking about sports books well we were making this. Book off oh, oh, air, Murph, that it's quite different from other areas of art, if you want to call it mm. that, in terms of how you interact as a reader with what you see compared to, say, if you're watching a documentary or something along those lines.
0: Yeah, like the if you, if you go and watch uh, a film in the cinema, there's obviously been a million and one different tiny changes and edits. To, the whole process has been painstaking, but what you get is two hours. Or give or take, mm. that's what you're judged on. And the idea that you're thinking about the something that has been lost or something has, that has been added. At the end of the day, what you see is what you get. That's mm. what that the the process is all, is is all there. You know, you don't see any of the process, but the final result is all there. With a sports autobiography and with a sports documentary, say, I think the documentary even more so than the book is you know the key moments you know the the key conflicts in someone's lot in sport in someone's sporting life and you can you can tell how much of how much of that of the real kernel of truth or experience that that person went through you know how much of it you're getting in a way that you just don't do when you're reading sitting down to read a novel and i think that that's one of the key challenges of a sports autobiography done in the traditional here you you're the ghostwriter yeah I'm going to sit down and talk to you for two or three months, I'm, and we'll write a book together. And I think that, that you are hamstrung by people's prior knowledge before you go in, so that when you read a book, <clears throat> you're, you're not judging the book on right. I thought that was a really good book. Really, what you're get, what you're judging is a sliding scale of truth, and where you get, well, you know, the higher up the slide, the higher up the scale you get of truth, the more for all of the other flaws in the book. The more you're willing to forgive, and say "Dub Sub Confidential" is Mm -hmm. like I think it's actually a really well-written book, Mm. and I like the the concern that I had with that book was, you know, he's written it himself; it's a very personal story. So maybe what you what you're going to lose in the writing style, you're going to gain on that scale of truth, in that he's going to tell you absolutely everything that happened. Mm. Therefore, it's a good book. Now it happens to be a little bit more than that, but I just think that say if you watch a sports documentary, and it's about say, the 1986 World Cup final, and you're sitting there and you're, you're thinking, right, well, I've seen the goals in the game, so hopefully I'll see, you know, actually there are some celebration scenes that everyone has seen sure. from there. Yeah, yeah. But you're like, I hope I get inside the dressing room and, yeah. and, and, and we see that. And if you don't see it, then you're like, oh, yeah, they didn't get that footage, or, you know, they didn't pay for that yes. footage. That's, that's annoying. And the, it, uh, a sports book is the exact same. Only maybe it's not as it's not as blatant as that. Well, it's certainly, I, and
1: it is it is certainly the exact same. The higher profile the person, yeah, like dub so Confidential, we knew nothing about John Leonard, uh, so everything in it is new. Not yeah. much point John Leonard being cagey, you know? No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Henry Shefflin, maybe in the top ten most famous people in Ireland for the last fifteen years, everything that uh, he has done that is of interest was covered to the nth degree. We, One of the one of the few hurlers on top of that, that we actually threw, okay, drip-fed over the years, but we did get to sort of take his personality. We have a f- fair idea of who Henry Shefflin is, or at least the Henry Shefflin that has been presented to the world. Uh, for his book to be great, he would have to reveal himself as a different Henry Shefflin. He would have to... Produce a book that said, okay, you all thought I was one person, but here's what was going on in my head all that time. I was a totally different guy. I think, now, he, I think, I he, thought he did to a certain extent yeah. because I didn't expect, uh, Quite a uh, quite the 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 amount of sort of insecurity. Yes, yeah. Um, uh, quite the the, the the need to live up to the King Henry tag. Sure, wo- wo- the worry about what other people think of him. Yeah, the time. I, I, yeah exactly. And so there was a bit of that, but he to a certain extent he's he's onto a loser straight away because really, how much is, is there to tell that. We don't already know, you know, and and you're you're exactly right, Marv. So so you're, or at least this was the feeling I got reading reading Henry's book. Was I was reading it, going, well, okay, I want to find out, you know, um, what he really thought of, say, Cody in the last two years when he was leaving him out of the team. I wanted to find out, like, you know, how it felt to be such a, a an icon of the game. But to to really sort of struggle for your game, like, I, and and I don't know, I I just didn't come away from it really I, going. Uh, I, yeah, I, thought, I, I got to the heart there.
2: I thought there was a good insight. I thought there were some good insights on Cody. Maybe not as much in the last uh, on the last couple of years as and, as, as, and as you as I you would have liked. I don't, and
1: I don't mean that in that I wanted him to have a go at him or anything. I want I just wanted a bit more kind of honesty or, or insight or Yeah, or I thought there was a good insight into the relationship between the two mm. men though in,
2: uh, over the years, the two of them uh, having these heart-to-hearts yeah. after, well, there'd be these casual drinks in the, yeah, on the Tuesday after like the All Ireland, yeah, he'd pop yeah. along, Shefflin and me, Cody for a pint, they bumped into each other in hospital, I think that was just an accident. Yeah. So Cody was at heart, uh, Co- Cody yeah, had Cody some, had the heart, yeah. yeah. and Shefflin was having one of his many operations yeah. and they met and had this lovely chat about various mm. things outside of hurling. So, I, I thought that there was this, uh, you did get, towards the bottom of the relationship between the two men and also how Cody would just drop little bombs in in training about yeah. maybe our senior guys not quite pulling this sauce, and Stefan would just assume he slating me here. Yeah. I'm going
1: to show him. So I did think he got some stuff on Cody and I, I, still and I would say it's it hard a bit, I thought it was watery. A bit, not watery, but I thought it was surface mm. enough, you know, that 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 we didn't get that far down into him.
0: Yeah, and, that's the, and that that's the that, that's the whole point really, isn't mm-hmm. it? You know that like if if and sometimes, and it's not necessarily. I wouldn't say that it is with Shefflin. For all that we're talking about here, I, there are there is something deeper there. I think than what's presented in the book. Sometimes sports people are boring people, you know, it's and uh, you know, and I think that there's there's the the and, idea and that if. Sorry
1: and And there sometimes they are people and it, actually never mind sometimes I was in ninety nine percent of the time. They are people if, who, if you had said to them when they were twenty that they would have a book on their life story on the shelves when they were thirty five they would go, "What the hell are you talking about? Why on earth would anybody be interested in me yeah. um, and just because they are amazing in the top in the ninth percentile at one particular thing. Uh, and, and because and-, and because some publisher has decided that there's money to be made off their name, that is why their book exists, not because they're burning to tell their life story and the the things that that make great books and it doesn't matter whether they 're sports books, it doesn't matter whether they 're fiction or non fiction or great pieces of art is if the people who are doing them are burning to do them, burning to the the world cannot survive without my. Input without that's what John Leonard thought all the way through. He he thought, "Wow, this would be a good story to tell people." Um And you know, you go around the more famous people, and you go, "Yeah, I don't know if their story is all that." Like watching them was one of the great privileges <laughs> yeah. of our lives. Like, but reading their story, I don't know uh, if, if it's uh, that big a deal. Maybe, you know? maybe the-
2: I'm just being. Too forgiving now because we've had so many really bland ones that I'm I'm, I'm actually being too generous in my <laughs> interpretation of some of these autobiographies. Because I'm not expecting much more from the the really big names. I think
0: that's a big thing as well that our expectations are, are not they're so, high. Yeah. They're <laughs> for sports autobiographies. They're they're not high. No. Uh, but in in fairness, when you get a good one you know, the, you, your faith is restored to some
2: extent. And we have got some good ones here. We haven't even talked about any of our. So what we're going to do here is okay. just deliver a top five in no particular order. Mm-hmm. And we will decide on the number one. That's that's, and that's sorry, where we we'll vo- Sorry, how does the voting block work? Uh, does someone have a casting vote on is what I'm asking well I'm the chair of this Okay, I'd like to consider myself the chair of this podcast Nice. so I will the
1: chopped liver side of the table (laughs) well we we can say whenever we we like that that's fine where we're going to start
2: we've mentioned a couple of times No Borders this is a a playing rugby for Ireland by Tom English an oral history yes Yes. oh you want uh, yeah you don't want to go through the five first okay
1: no 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 okay No Borders um, No Borders is an oral history of Irish rugby over the last 70 years, post-war Irish Mm -hmm. rugby. Now, an oral history, I don't know if, any of you have ever written one, uh, I have written one. I wrote one for a newspaper article, An Oral History of the Sunday Game. I did it about three years ago and I swore afterwards that I will <laughs> never, ever do it again. One of the interviewees
0: for that was Jim Kearney, so
1: I could already see that there are <laughs> major <is> problems. <laughs> major fair, problems are already... That broken. is a fair point, actually. It <laughs> wouldn't... <laughs> yeah. You just take that man out of it. Don't you? <laughs> but, uh, what, so what an oral history is, for, for anybody that doesn't know, is that, that it basically, instead of... Interviewing people and then crafting the story around them, like basically, you know, writing around it and and stitching in quotes here and there. You let the quotes tell the story. So in in order to do that, A you have to do an awful lot of digging. Uh Tom Ingers has done this book, I think it took him maybe three to four years to do. He wow. inter the I think there was 140 interviewees in the end. Uh uh and then I think the bibliography runs to a page full of uh, rugby books, newspaper pieces, journals, all of this down the years. The level of of research is insane. And the problem with doing that much research and uh, anybody that, that sort of writes for a living or makes uh, documentaries or anything like that uh, realizes that the, the tyranny of having done too much research is that you want to get every bit of it in. <laughs> but if you think of the amount that the of people that he interviewed the amount of articles that he took from if he included everything the book would be the size of a of a cement brick yeah so the government tribunal exactly and he's got it into about 300 pages here so to do that the level of work to do that and then on top of which to make it readable Like, to not push that burden of research onto the person who is reading it is fantastic. So, basically, this goes from Jack Kyle all the way up to Connor Murray. Like, it's, it's basically everybody... Of, of interest that has played for Ireland over 70 years. And it is brilliant. It's hilarious in places. It's very, like, it's chilling in places around the 80s when three of the the Irish rugby team were blown up uh, on their way to Ireland rugby training before the 87 World Cup. Um, there are stories, uh, like, from, as we were talking earlier, you know, the amateur to, to professional. Actually, some of the, the amateur stories are brilliant, uh, because it was a completely different time. You know, trying to get their expenses off IRFU men before. Like, hilarious stuff that, at this remove. And uh, it's great. It's really... I And you can dip into it and dip out of it. You don't have to, like, catch yourself up uh, on the narrative at any stage because it is so readable. And I, yeah, I, I the, really enjoyed it. Now.
0: Yeah, the stuff from the 70s uh, around the start of the Troubles and that mm. was very good as well. Yeah, And it is actually... It's, it's a book that you can just uh, dip into... And, you know, it, you know the story. You know the yeah, narrative. Yeah. We were terrible for many, many years yeah. with uh, short, sharp bursts of us being good. And uh, the times when we were terrible are every bit as entertaining to read about. Very much so Probably are, yeah. more so, in fact, yeah. than the, let's have some effing pride. Or let's yeah. show some effing pride, whatever, yeah. you know. But it's... Um, no, it is. And I think that uh, you, the the points you make about the oral history are very well made. And it it's not... It doesn't hit you over the head, say... I've never tried to do an oral history. I read it and was like, this book probably seemed like quite a bit of fun to do. Exactly. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. If he meets this amount of people, got that level of interaction and fun out of them, I kind of read it thinking this would be a bit of a laugh. So yeah. obviously. He he managed to completely subsume well, their
1: nightmarish. All he did, was, all he did <laughs> was include yeah, the good years. stories, yeah. And so it's just a book of good stories. Like, what well, what more do you want? Like, it's, does he
2: get Does he get much out of the professional, the modern guys?
1: Yeah, yeah. To a certain extent, yeah, he gets the uh, decent stuff out of say O'Gara and Dennis Hickey and all these guys about just how things changed, mm. like just you know, and how quickly things changed. That 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 that's some of the the more interesting stuff. For you kind of Shane Horgan going on about how. You know, in an instant, like over the course of a, of a season, they went from just getting shit hammered out of them to going, right. Well, we can't put up with this anymore. Like, and and it's it is stuff that we we do know to a certain extent. It is stuff about you know. What pushed Warren Gatlin to to uh, play the the five debutants against Scotland in what was that two thousand or two thousand and one or whenever it was, like they were just at the end of their rope, like they they were just completely devoid of of a future, and then so they played what was it Stringer and O'Gara and Simon Easterby and Shane Horgan and all in this one match, and there and that, there was the birth of modern Irish rugby as we knew it. Um, so it's great It's it's very enjoyable now
2: Alright first one I'm going to bring Is Living on the Volcano uh, The Secrets of Surviving As a Football Manager By Michael Calvin Who we'll be speaking to About this book In the football podcast today Just to uh, forward sell here, Tied uh, up, up in a neat store. Little bundle yeah. there So what he does here I don't know if anyone Has tried this before And if they haven't They should have <laughs> <laughs> He just interviews A bunch of managers In England From Brendan Rogers yeah. And Roberto Martinez Down to guys As low as League 2 Now if, even if the guy's interviewed, Rogers has been sacked since. Gary Monk is the most oh, recent.
1: Man. It, he, Gary Monk was the first person I thought, or, or this book was the yeah. first thing I thought of last week when Gary Monk got sacked.
2: Some of them even, some, <laughs> it's true, some of them even lose their jobs over the course of writing the book. Yeah. While he's writing, he goes, he interviews, I'll talk about Joe Dunne in a second, a, a guy from mm. Dublin, who he interviews. Ten days later, he's sacked as Colchester manager. Ten day, And he's in the, Calvin is in the process of interviewing another manager at this point, Gary Waddock actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Wadduk gets a text saying, Joe Dunn gone, you know, this this stuff goes around and the managers do, a lot of them do have a big empathy for each other. But yeah, so it's about why these guys pour themselves into this thankless task, put their family life at risk, put their mental health at risk mm. in certain cases. I mean, the Rogers chapter is hilarious. Awesome. awesome. Wear the crown, it's called. He's got a flip chart <laughs> in his office with a crude drawing of a stick man with a jagged crown on his head. <laughs> What I say to players is this: the crown is on your head, my friend. You are the king of your destiny. This is what he says. Th- now, this is what he says to everybody when they come into the club.
1: <laughs> Do you laugh? I love this. No,
2: so did I. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. oh well, no. I mean, I, I, it sounds amazing
1: because this, this is a bit about the salary, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah the pay packets. So, wait, so uh, uh, he has. He, uh, I can't remember exactly what it is, but he has. 12 by 36 or something like that written on the on the side of... Um, that flip chart, a, yeah, beside the crown,
2: chart. beside the sick man with the crown.
1: And so basically, uh, and after a while, Calvin kind of asks him, what's, what's those numbers? I have the numbers wrong there, by the way, but whatever yeah, the yeah, numbers yeah. are, uh, he says, oh, I was talking to a 19-year-old uh, kid here this morning, and I was saying, so... I think it was some kid that had been acting out or, he'd been, you know, he's just not living up to whatever he's supposed to live up to. And he said, uh, so these numbers are the amount of pay packets you have left until you retire. And so I just wrote down the number for him. And so every month that you do nothing, one of those pay packets is gone. And you have to use that number of pay packets to support your family for the rest of your life. Now, why aren't you trying a training? And it's got your goal. That's fantastic. <laughs> of course, it is.
2: <laughs> oh, there's some great stuff in there, and there's the, the humanity. And Rodgers is really respected by mm. a lot of the other coaches because he got to Liverpool. He lost it. He was mm. sacked like everyone else was sacked. He came through the coaching system like a lot of guys in this book. Actually, Rogers was injured mm. uh, g- during his career. Some of them have bad injuries and they might play on, but they it gets them thinking. It sharpens the focus about what they're going to do afterwards. So a lot of them do. You do get some sense of, of how respected Rogers is but you do get a lot of the Brendan Rogers-isms like he even brings Stephen Gerrard in at one stage but Stephen Gerrard goes into him looking for advice 32 years of whatever age Stephen Gerrard is at this point saying boss I'm not playing well here I, need, I just need a bit of a pep talk okay Stephen, sit down here start writing down all the issues sit together write them all down Rogers knows he has to get this right he says it to Calvin he goes this is Stephen Gerrard I, ha- I can't fluff my lines here so he says "Stephen, you've got to puff your chest out And wear the crown. You're the king of your own destiny. So it's just, it's beautiful. (laughs) beautiful. But where where the book really, I think, um, has, where its strengths lie is in the conversations he has with people that I didn't know or didn't Mm. know much about. And Joe Dunn is one of them, an Irish guy, played under 21 for Ireland from Inchicore, played for Colchester for many years, was assistant manager there, and became the manager there before he got sacked. This guy just. There are quite a few smart people in this book. Oh, yeah. And this, Joe Dunn comes across, I think, as the smartest. Isn't this for a description, right? He's talking about what happens at the me- the mental pressure of management. This is what happens to him during a game. He says it's almost like going snow blind. You watch a match with such intensity and with so much happening that you almost black out. Your brain is processing all the information and it can't compute. For a split second, it shuts off, it reactivates. But generally, you have to walk back to the dugout for that. This is like, he has about seven or eight of these. Mm. I've never heard anyone talk about management yeah. quite like that. And th- this is a fellow who I'd barely heard of. It's yeah,
1: I, it's, I really, like, we'll, we'll, we'll make our votes later. This is my absolute favorite book of the year. Right. Because it's, um, and what I came away from it, I was writing about this last Saturday or Saturday before, when I was doing the stuff about the books, Um the job sounds horrible. Horrible, yeah. It sounds like the worst job. And you are going to get sacked from it as well. You're going to get sacked from this terrible job. Everybody, that doesn't pay very well in the lower division. Everybody in this book is three defeats away from being <laughs> unemployed. Yeah. It is, sounds like the worst job in the world. Lonely. But what an amazing book in which you can take the worst job in the world and interview the people who love that job more than anything in the world and get them to talk about it. It is, it is fantastic and, and they are all so addicted to it and so almost trapped in it that's what that's, that, that was what I got from it was that, that these guys are, are completely fatally attracted yeah. to this terrible terrible life
2: A lot of them talk about the loneliness not just of the day to day job which you might imagine but even in the stadium. they talk Again, Joe Dunn talks about it being like, you're in the technical area, it's this little patch of land, this mm. whatever it is, 10 by 10. And it feels like being on an iceberg and mm. you're cut adrift from everybody else in the stadium and you're just watching them, and you're going further and further away. And a few people talk like that. They don't mm. all use the iceberg analogy, yeah. but a few of them talk about just this intense loneliness that you totally. have.
1: And, and, and on top of which, you know, you get a little peek into what their actual life is, you know, what their family situations are, what their you know a lot of them don't live at home like a lot of them uh, have their family in one part of the country but work has taken them to another part of the country so
0: why would you buy a house you're going to get sacked well exactly
1: so so so, like so you you get and, and a lot of them you know bring their staff with them so them and their assistant manager are living in some crappy flat in in like Birmingham or something like that while their family lived down in London or something like that and it's, it's just a, a horrendous horrendous life there's, there's some
2: great stuff on a lot of them it, it, there's a real mix of new methods and yes. old particularly yeah. old, old school English football mm-hmm. thought even within the same managers you get this Aidy Boothroyd is a, a, a guy people will be probably familiar with but there's a story of him managing Northampton and it's half time Calvin seems to be in the dressing room to see this happen as opposed to it being relayed to him later. Uh, so he punches the wall at half time, they're 2-0 down whatever it is. Punches the wall, oh, yeah. rips <laughs> apart his youngest player and his oldest player. As for you, Mr. 31-year-old yeah, fat new yeah. you contract, you know, you're know you not even as good as this young lad who he's just destroyed. Right. So he goes through all that big tantrum, sends him out, they still lose, uh, but he feels that they they contribute a lot more in the second half. And when he's explaining this, the rationale behind this <laughs> to Calvin, he says, oh yeah, no, no, no. That's, that was all totally planned. Um, you see, there are four types of learning. There's uh, unconscious incompetence. There's Conscious incompetence is all these things, and that young player, he was at level one. Unconscious incompetence, and he starts explaining <laughs> his philosophy. Began. It's like, no, man, you just punched a wall. He broke his hand, by the way. Oh, yeah. he did. He broke. He broke his hand,
1: and and the thing was, he says, "I do that twice a year."
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that
1: was his, that was that was the punchline to the punchline. Yeah. But he says, "I do I do that twice a year, but yeah, it's not good. more than that because you you know diminishing returns." Yeah, <laughs> it's a dub- brilliant book.
2: Dub- sub confidential mirror for goalkeepers' life with and without the dubs by John Leonard.
1: Yeah. Um.
0: It's it's hard to it's hard to take yourself back to before you read this book and ta- and say accurately what you thought this book was going to be about yeah. because you you kind of say you you receive a book you take a look at the cover you say right okay this is about uh, Dublin some goalkeeper I think I've heard of this guy I think I've read, I was on that blog a couple of times this could be this could be literally anything you know and then you're it's like there's like loads of womanizing in the book and you're like God okay. I hope this isn't too cringy. What it is, actually, is just a really, really well-written book. And to be honest, the football bits, like the year that he spends with the Dubs is probably the... It's probably the least interest, even from a sporting context. Actually, yeah. his year at the Dubs is the least interesting sporting part of the book. Because I think I
2: think it's two or three years he gets with them in the end. Yeah, but, but yeah. It's, two, it's a I mean, year. He plays one game though. Yeah, it's a year. One boring cup game.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a year on the bench and then a year of gradually getting sort of disillusioned sure. with it and then. So, what what makes it a very good sports book? And it's just a rollicking good read anyway. To be honest, regardless mm. of the, the sport part of it what i actually just found really really interesting about it was the dream you know the you it, it you're not going to get from henry shefton or from anyone else at the end of a like richly garlanded career a description about being 23 living in australia and thinking about the dubs mm. you know the, mm-hmm. like it doesn't happen like the the va- like the vast majority of sports per- people's lives are mapped out for them for the, in the GA context certainly they play minor, they play under 21, they play senior, they have a year of sitting on the bench at 20 or 21, you know, kicking their heels, and then, then they go on. Like, the level of life experience that John Leonard has, uh, while, and the dubs are in the background all the time for him, I, th- I thought that was the most interesting thing, because it's actually, it's easy enough to, to go in and just forget about Dublin, uh, the city, and Dublin, the football team, and have like the most mad out of a time mm-hmm. in australia mm-hmm. for 2 or 3 years but kind of at the at the root of it what the dubs meant for him was like a level of stability in his life and a, a, like a sense of worth well, he has after
1: that, that sort of that moment of clarity, and I can't remember where he was. Was he was he smoking opium off the side of the Himalayas, or was he travelling through the outback with the S and M mistress? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he did at one point sit down uh, with a coffee, looking out at the sea, uh, and asked himself with a pen and paper, "What makes me happy?" And he wrote down three things: to get closer with my father to play football for the Dubs. Sorry, to write a novel, to get closer with my father and to play football, play senior with the Dubs. And he... Uh, that was the sort of... If, if they ever make a, a, a movie, like, that'll be a pivotal scene. like Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that was... Introducing a, the third act. Precisely, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they might do that in the intro and then, yeah. <laughs> then do, do the rest yeah. in flashback or whatever. But yeah, like... And and that, that that was... I think you're right, Murph. Like, I did feel at times, you know, that that some of the football stuff or some of the sports stuff was was almost nearly a too nearly a convenient peg to hang the rest of the story on without it actually being that big you know like you know if you're if you're trying to get any sort of insight into what the dubs were in the mid uh, 2000s i don't know if you get a whole pile other than the fact that not a bit of wonder they weren't winning much. If a guy could go from being mm. <laughs> from being yeah. a, a a heroin addict to being their sub goalkeeper within eighteen months, well, it's funny, but, um, exactly. yeah. But so so the sports side of it, you're right though that 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 that, is, love, the, the, I, that like, is the but that is the the key to it. Like they, it does tie itself together because that is what gets them to to a better place. You yeah,
0: know? and I think that like it's something that way more people can relate to than the. Playing three years of minor, playing a year and twenty one. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, so yeah. many of us, uh, like club footballers and club hurlers, kind of have it in the back of their head as, like this nebulous thing. God, like you know, maybe if I got my act together next year, mm. you know, I could give this a good rattle. You yeah. know, and like it never gets any further than that. You know, and whether you're sitting on a bar stool in you know Glenamaddy, mm. or you're sitting on a bar stool in Boston. Greece, yeah. or yeah. you know in the outback with mm. an S and M mistress. Like, the, like everyone's had that conversation with the themselves. The dream is the that, same, yeah. You know, and it kind of not alone that as well. It's like if I did that, if if I did get to play inter county for a couple of years, everything else would fall into place yeah, as well. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. You know, and like that's how people think. Like, mm. it's not like oh, everything in my, in my life is great, and if I add being an inter county footballer, that that's great. Mm. It's like if I, in, I'm, I'm someone. In, I'm yeah. someone in the community. I'm, you know, I, I'll the. I'll be attractive to girls, you know, like, the, you know, it, it's all tied up. Sure. You can't compartmentalise things and the, the great thing about the book is that the dubs isn't, thro- it's not uh, uh, we'll get back to the football in eight chapters but here is how I went crazy, mm. you know, and my life fell apart. It's throughout the There's book. There's low hum of it through the, the Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 At all yeah. times there is always the possibility of the dubs and the only thing is if to take the movie analogy and I hope John does sell the movie rights for millions is that there's not one scene where he plays in front of Sixty or seventy thousand euro Park and it's running along the subs or running along the, the sideline with Sennon and Connell and yeah, yeah. those guys. Like yeah. that, that, was as good as it got for for him. Yeah. But at the same time, Sennon
2: Connell played a lot of games for Dublin, by the way. Um- oh
0: no, no, he's running along <laughs> the sideline. Like, sorry, the, the, incident, the incident in the book is him warming <laughs> yeah. up with Sennon like sen- yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Um. Well, oh, there's just one more point I wanted to make about that one was that we were making out as though it's easy for someone like John Leonard to write all this stuff down. No, And we should stress that this guy was sexually abused by a priest when he was a child and he writes about that really eloquently Mm -hmm. and that's not easy to write about. I don't care how famous you are or or not. Uh, And also troubled relationships with his family. A a lot of the issues that that really, as he worked out over the years, probably flowed out of being sexually abused and uh, that priest actually ended up getting Prosecuted, um, all and that a very famous but,
1: priest, Father but, Ivan Payne. Yeah, you no, know? exactly. it was. It, he was. I, I, I did not know that, that John Leonard was was the. Well, nobody knew, but John, he was the whistleblower. Like he, he was. It was a pivotal case in in bringing the church, yeah, to to his knees which, in, in the mid nineties. Which yeah. took
2: a lot of balls for him to talk about yeah. that at the time, and for him to write about it publicly now. I would say our next book. Well, is, sorry, just yeah. before you go
1: on, the one other thing to to say about it, and we're and and. and I think sometimes we're we're very blasé especially when we talk about you know books written by journalists or ghosts written by journalists um John Leonard did an arts degree, and this is a really well written yep. book he's really not a well he's not together. a professional writer he never 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 was uh he has some lovely turns of phrase in this that there that are, and and that was the other thing that if it's if it's a story of you know drink and drugs and women and football. Uh, you know you got without, a, a
0: without a ghost without
1: a ghostwriter, you, you know you would come to it with a bit of a you know with the with the guard up but it's actually it's really really well written Jim McGuinness
2: Until Victory Always was one that was flagged from the start of the year yeah. when we were looking forward to did it deliver?
1: I thought so yeah yeah I mean I I, I really I think it's the best GA book around um, and I think it's the there's two things with it. One, again, I thought it was really well written. Uh, Keith Duggan ghost wrote it. Um, one of the books that one of these books that that you know sometimes when you're when you're ghostwriting you you can try too hard to get somebody's voice, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes it can end up being quite bland. Otherwise, uh, whereas this like this isn't exactly Jim McGinness's voice it's more certainly parts of it are more of a kind of an inner monologue certainly like the 2012 yeah, the chapter of winning the book season is very is it's it's written differently to the rest of the book so it's written in short sharp sentences and it, it seems to be his kind of inner thoughts all the way through whereas the rest of it is kind of a bit more expansive a bit more storytelling and I quite like that approach I have to say yeah. because a lot of these books can can get into and then we played to our own and then we went on a training camp and then and then and then and this, is, this go, flows a bit different to that and the other thing about it um, is the, the fact that with a lot of autobiographies the personal stuff you know the school days and the family life and all that can get a bit, mm-hmm. a bit, bit kind of running through treacle. Whereas Jim McGuinness's personal stuff are a real main plank of the book. Is the death of his two brothers and the effect that that had on him, the effect that had on him on a, as a, as a footballer, uh, the effect it had on him as a man and and what it, and the man it it produced, and and I I think like they were so important and so germane to the story that you get to the end of the book and realize what the effect that they had on him as a man. And the man that comes across here, and I think this is my overriding thought on the book, is that basically any of these books that, that, that you see staring out from the shelves, especially the ones from famous people, relatively famous people, the the autobiographies, that is the book that they want produced. That is the, the story that they want. That's the face of... That they want to present of themselves to the world, mm-hmm. and what I find interesting about McGuinness's book is that he doesn't come across as a particularly likable guy in it. Um, I I have covered him. I covered him all the time that, that he was Donegal manager, and I was always quite fascinated with him. And any time I had any personal dealings with him, I, I I found him quite, you know, quite uh, convivial or whatever. But this book. He doesn't really care to make to plane off the edges, that of the person he is, and I thought that that was a really kind of brave is the wrong word, but a really interesting storytelling choice. You know, the, the as as you said to him on, on the TV show, there are a lot of contradictions in the book. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of contradictions even, you know, within pages like there, there's a bit, uh, I think, in, in 2011 or early 2012 where he's talking about, you know, um, making them run until they puke because puking is actually a good thing. When you when you're training, because you you know that you have got to the bottom of yourself and taken yourself a bit beyond, and he says this is a really you know I, I don't mind if the if the if the lads puke when they're doing the sand dune runs mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but literally, like three paragraphs later, because I, I burst out laughing. It was literally three paragraphs later. He says, "Seen some reports that I'm I'm running them like dogs in training. These people just don't know what they're talking about." And you're going. Yeah. You've literally just said you're running them until they puke. Yeah. Um, and I quite but I quite like that if you're able to sort of step back and go okay, he clearly is a man of contradictions. He clearly is a man that doesn't really care if he comes across as a bit of an arsehole or a bit of a megalomaniac or a bit of uh, somebody who's demented in his cause. Um, so I I thought it, it a really kind of multi-layered book, which you don't normally get with sporting autobiographies. I
2: thought so. and The obsession that he has with how Donegal were portrayed, because mm. what this book claims to or what certainly wants to do is get to the bottom of how this guy did what he did with his county Mm. the county that hadn't had a history of winning all Ireland's and I think you do actually get to the nub of that I think he he, this idea that he fostered had himself that they were constantly being literally in some cases spat at by Mm. other teams or kicked trodden on and he finds every conceivable angle to to push that through Every, every conceivable slight that might be there he decides. Well, this is another case of people, you know, um, stomping all over us, mm. and we have grown to accept it as Donegal people, as uh, certainly as Donegal footballers. We've just accepted our place in sight, and you can see how he kind of goes over, goes about changing that. The stuff with his, as you, you've eloquently talked about, the how he talks about his brothers. I just think that the portraits of both of them are really vivid, and sometimes that can be a difficult thing to do. That's obviously partly, largely, what the way he talks about them and the way that Keith Duncan can skillfully bring that. You you do get a sense of these guys. They're not just
1: uh, incidentally. He was my brother, and
0: I loved him dearly. It was the both of them are like really precise details of the exact type of person Mm. that both of his brothers were, and to be honest, that's the like the the. The the just the skill and the beauty of those chapters alone make this absolutely amazing, just a brilliant book. And
2: yeah. I agree with you on the point about his contradictions. The uh, just the, the for example, he, and something we didn't actually talk about in the TV interview. In the TV interview, we talked more about what he about Kevin Cassidy, and particularly about mm. Rory Gallagher, which I thought mm. was the most interesting because Gallagher is a current Donegal manager. And I did feel reading that book that McGuinness said a couple of things in there which I thought could potentially damaged the way the relationship between the now Donegal manager and his players namely that when they were sitting on the bus on the way home after the 2013 All-Ireland Final Uh, supposedly Gallagher was like we've got got to get rid of these guys you know (laughs) these old guys are are gone pretty much now McGuinness argued in the TV interview that well that did happen there's nothing in it that didn't happen which is true but of course you you decide what you put in I'm sure there's other stuff that happened that we'd all be very interested in (laughs) but that just isn't in there so there was that and his treatment of Declan Bogue the journalist the point I was about to raise that we didn't get to in the TV interview didn't talk about but that was a strange one whatever about Cassidy you can see his argument there Cassidy did contribute to this book did give away some of the trade secrets and therefore he was bombed out of there. Okay, that's what a lot of managers might do in that situation. But to then blank the journalist and refuse to speak to the media yeah. because he, as far as I can see, did his job. McGuinness seems to think there were inaccuracies in there. I, I, I That always had a little bit uneasily with me, but like you're saying, he talks about that, he explains it, his explanation doesn't make that much sense to no, me. No, I got but he's it. Yeah. But, he, but it's there, and that uh, contributes to a, 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 round, a more rounded view of the subject of the autobiography, of the memoir. Yeah,
0: and for better or worse, that's the explanation, and you make your own mind up yeah, about yeah. whether, and whether like you're satisfied it, with it, it, can, it or not. Yeah. yeah, and that's as much as you can hope for, really, isn't it?
2: I'll talk about the last of the five books here Man's World, The Double Life of Emil Griffith by Donald McRae. I think you you would generally uh, approach a Donald McRae book <laughs> with quite a degree of optimism. This is a guy who's won the William Hill Sports Book of the Year twice. Um, this book is about Emile Griffith. So we, I knew this story a little bit. I knew that this was a guy. I didn't realize how, how amazing a boxer Griffith was. Five-time world champion from 1958 to 1977. He fought 337 world championship rounds, which is more than any other fighter in history. Actually, he only died two years ago. McRae went to meet him before he died. Now he was in a bad way at that stage. Had suffered from dementia for a, quite a long time in, in, in his later years in life. But this is about him killing a man in the ring, an opponent, Benny Parrott, who had uh, called him a maricon, had abused him uh, for being gay. Now, everybody within boxing at that time, in the late late 50s, early 60s, kind of thought that he was gay. It was this not so much unspoken thing but he was leading this double life where he was hitting the gay scene uh, partying away and then going and and doing the boxing and he hoped those worlds would never collide because being a gay boxer even now wouldn't be easy certainly in the late 50s early 60s in America it was really difficult and that's what McRae does brilliantly here he fleshes out how America was at that time. Alcohol wasn't allowed to be served to gay people around the late 50s, early 60s. There was a New York Times article at the time. Growth of homosexuality in city provokes wide concern. Sexual inverts have colonized three areas of New York. This is the kind of environment we're talking about and he's in boxing. So this is, which is as alpha male as it it gets. Mm. He also, uh, so he sets out the story Parry ab- abuses him before their second fight, then abuses him in far more vigorous terms before their third fight. Parry ends up dying in the ring and McRae constructs an argument that at least partly that was down to the rage felt by uh, and the insecurity and all the issues that were in the head of, of Emil Griffith. So he talks about the night itself. He fleshes out the, the Paré side of things. This is a guy who'd planned to quit boxing to become a butcher. He was going to buy a butchery and his wife was constantly telling him to give it up. He'd been suffering from concussions. The night before the fight, actually, he called his wife and said, look, my head's really sore, and she's there, pull out, don't don't fight this fight. Yeah, so There's all this tragedy within it, uh, and even the rest of Griffith's life, he's in the corner of another fighter who kills a man in the ring. He's there to witness that. There's about two or three other tragedies that he's connected with through boxing, and you just get this sense of... And, and he never really talks publicly about being gay either. It's just something that's there uh, through his entire life. So it's... And, oh, by the way, the, the impact on Griffith of killing... Paré is obviously massive, that's specific. He's All these visions of him standing at the end of his bed. He has this recurring dream where he's a spectator at the fight. And he sits down and he's watching the two of them fight. And then suddenly the ghost of Paré is sitting beside him. And then he wakes up. So this is something that he lived with for his entire life. Now towards the end he got some sort of closure. He never got to meet. Uh, he tried to meet the the mother, sorry, the wife of Benny Parrott, and he couldn't. But there was a documentary done a few years back, and he met his son, who was a toddler at the time, mm. and his son gave a measure of forgiveness for from the family. So yeah, just really well done by Donald McRae, as you'd probably expect. Yeah, him. and we're we're talking
0: about uh, <laughs> talking about making movies of these books, Lenny Abrahamson, the Irish film director who's just uh, oh, released room. her in yeah room he's actually making a movie of the life of of milton oh, yeah? just been announced ah, yeah and okay. um, and to be honest when i That'd first heard this story 5 or 6 years ago i was like where like, you know where <laughs> where is the movie of this yeah. you know mm-hmm. this is the most one of the most amazing stories and again it's it's like it's one of those um combinations of story and author that you're just really really happy with and, and uh, it's brilliant. It's just really, before
2: really we decide upon our number one second captains, including Malachy Durkin, <laughs> sports book of the year for 2015. I, I think you're forgetting <laughs> annual style <laughs> book there, there sort of a retro. Like <clears throat>
1: Well, I wanted to talk to you people about this, actually. You go on then. Yeah, you'd be delighted you brought it up. So I was flicking through. This doesn't sound good. (laughs) I was flicking through this so-called second captain's annual, Mm. which is what you're grumbling about here. Yeah, obviously. Obviously, I didn't buy it, but I was standing (laughs) in Easton's one of the days reading it. Real nice. Where I saw, you know, guest contributions. Mm. Yep. What am I? What am I doing here? What am I even doing here? What is this little thing we do? Okay, sometimes? well, I, I you know, will.
0: I, can I point yeah. you to the cover of the book? It yeah. says Second Captain Sports Annual, Volume One." Yep. Mouky, right, good yeah, Good things come yeah. to those who wait.
1: So, uh, Second Captain's uh, Volume Two not good enough to get in on the ground floor but they feel a bit guilty I'd probably have well no we just needed to one. set the yeah. groundwork. To, it, it's going to sure. fully
2: explode next year yeah, like, yeah. that's the one you want to be on people won't even remember volume 1 Yeah, yeah. after uh, volume my advice
1: wait, wait till the January sales you get it for about a five <laughs> <million>. <laughs> okay. these, these guys don't care <laughs> our number one our
2: number one sports book of the year Murph you go first
0: uh, Jimmy Guinness. Until yep. Victory Always goes written by Keith Duggan
1: Living on the Volcano Michael
2: Calvin. Okay. Okay. Oh, I'm torn. Well, I'm actually torn between those two, but having talked about Dub so Confidential again, I remembered <laughs> how much I liked that. I, I'd not forgotten about it. But I uh, wavered while I was talking, yeah, while I
1: was talking about it. About you there, nearly convinced me about Jim yeah. McGuinness. No,
2: I think we've talked a lot, and we did at the start of the program, about autobiographies, memoirs, in this case, not delivering a lot of the time and subjects being afraid to open up so when one actually does open up in this way and it's written so well I'm going to just about give the nod to Jim McGuinness there uh, we're living on the volcano yes, so that's G- so. Jim McGuinness yeah. number one no, yeah no, no, no I'm, I'm, happy yeah. 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 Okay. I'm happy enough with that I'm happy enough with <laughs> that by them both Maliki, brilliant stuff happy Christmas cheers
3: The flame hair,
2: flame the hair the truth flame
1: Mr Ken, Ken truth. Early Mr Ken, Mr. Ken, 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 Ken Early, early.
2: Every so often I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around
0: and bite someone.
1: John Hayes I'm talking about on yeah. John Hayes. Now I always thought that was ridiculous.
0: He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan
1: Rodgers.
2: That's where it goes from. Sight. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now For you give it up. <laughs> If you pick up a copy of today's Irish Times, you will read a two-page spread on the Irish Times Sportswoman of the Year awards, which is on tomorrow. It's Friday. If you're listening yep. to this on Thursday,
0: uh, and always, uh, always a big, uh, uh, a big date in the Irish Times uh, sports calendar, mm. I know. Uh, and there's two pages today outlining the the major contenders. Katie Taylor is there, as is uh, uh, I think pretty much an annual uh, annual event. Uh, Breach Corkery and Rena Buckley as well on their 16th on the occasion of their 16th All-Ireland final win Mm. in Camogie and Ladies Football. Sonia Sullivan's been writing a really good column as well for the Irish Times over the last couple of weeks. Uh, This week's is in relation to the the cross-country women winning the bronze last Monday, which was another uh, big achievement for them. They won won bronze last year as well. Uh, And only two of last year's team came back this year, so it's an indication of the strength and depth that we have uh, in that sport. But talking a little bit about the the winning mentality that Irish athletes need to try and foster that uh, a bronze in this tournament is all well and good, but that all of the individual runners now need to really take that into Olympic year yeah. and try and translate it into something uh, something even better uh, next August, which would be obviously something pretty brilliant. Yeah,
2: Sonia wrote a great piece a few weeks back about the key to performing a top-level sport being to relax a little bit, mm. even not, not so much away from the the track or away from the pitch but actually while you're performing it's something that uh, dawned on her when she met a coach who really espoused this idea but for a long time she was just pounding out as many miles she could as hard as she could and then uh, ultimately somebody got a hold of her and said there's a thing called relaxing being in the moment enjoying it to a certain extent it's really good and you you should definitely have a read of that one if you want to check through a few of uh, Sonia's articles over the last number of weeks now the Irish Times 2nd Captain's football podcast is coming up
1: it's... Yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really.
2: Oh, you can laugh. Have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You yeah. so don't know what you're talking about.
3: Yeah. What did you know? I'd like to stay
0: alive for six days. I'd say it right, 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 okay, to you, guys. I'll say it to you now. What, what you, now.
2: Do you I'm down Swampfields and we'll
0: see them like What you doing down here? You're showing me, man. <laughs> Loose ends, on. You're not a fan of them?
2: Loose ends? No. no you're, you're like things
0: tied, tied up in a... Need a little bundle. And so, uh, as previously flagged, uh, we will be talking to Michael Calvin, author of Living on the Volcano, one yep. of our very favourite. I, I think we can say in our top two. Well, I got very
2: close to number one there. I was wavering from McGuinness for a moment.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk to Michael Calvin about that book. Uh, and it, it is an excellent book. And we also spoke to uh, Dion Fanning on Chelsea. <laughs> the madness
2: um, of Josie Mourinho.
0: And uh, we, we spoke to Dion and what, Exactly, is going on with, uh, with Jose. No one is entirely sure. Uh, Marina Hyde asked the question in the Guardian today: Is he acting like an irredeemable prick? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's that's the question that we attempt to answer.
2: We've had a few people on to say that they have been in some of the shops on an unsuccessful hunt for the Second Captain Sports Annual Volume One. That's because they're selling well, and some of the shops have sold out of them temporarily. Temporarily, we have got another batch on the way and some of the shops do still have them but we have got another batch on the way from the printers so do not panic do not buy an inferior product just because you want to be like Murph and have your Christmas shopping done in a timely and orderly fashion there are more annuals on the way so hang on for the good stuff and of course you can get them online too secondcaptains.com if you get those orders in over the next few days um, try and get them done over the the weekend and we will get them delivered to you in time for Christmas within Ireland in the meantime thanks very much for listening to this show
0: yes yes that's to the listeners. I suppose you're going to yeah. thank me now. And I was looking at you. you yeah, well, thank you. for thanking him. Yes.
2: Okay. Thanks very much, thank and you. happy reading over the next few days. Hope if you don't buy some of those books yourself, some maybe somebody, some loved one will buy something nice for you. Thank you. <laughs> it. Gone. It's gone, is that? It's the second time it's
3: gone off. Oh. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home.